All right, let's turn to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. Now remember, in the Hebrew Bible, it's, it's already chapter 4, but uh, uh, in ours, it's chapter 3, so that's where we are. And we're coming now toward the end of this particular study in this wonderful prophecy. It's really been, though a short one, it's been a good one to learn a lot about what's happening leading up to what we call the day of the Lord, which is going to be, of course, the seven-year period of tribulation. And, um, of course, we'll see again that this is a time that is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And um, that, of course, is referring to Israel and Israel coming to a finality in its uh, judgments or its uh, chastisement from the Lord, punishment, if you will, from the Lord that goes back you know, thousands of years, but there was a there, there was a stoppage so much so of a, of the uh, of the prophet I should say of the punishment uh, in that the people were scattered again then for nearly two thousand years and um, of course after that uh, they're brought back into the land as we see them in the land today and uh, this is really significant because it is. Uh, it's something that is, is really out front in the news today. Though we might not think of it, it is. Because um, if you keep up with what's happening in our own country, in the national news, there's been this uh, revealing. And I believe it's the Lord revealing something of great uh, significance within our own political system. And that is that there is a political party that actually hates Israel. And there's no other way to say it. When they have elected uh, uh, Congress people like uh, the Congresswoman from Minnesota, who is very prominent in the news, and every time she opens her mouth, they're bringing it out in the open, but no one's really chastising her from her own party. They're actually protecting her. Sometimes they're, like uh, Nancy Pelosi was trying to do, was trying to say, well, she doesn't, you know, she's, it's almost like saying she doesn't know what she's saying. She knows exactly what she's saying. And this, this, kind, of, this kind of political uh, circus that's going on is just revealing what's happening in the world today. And it should, it should awaken every believer in Jesus Christ to say, you know what, the time of Christ's return is so close. <laughs> because where's that going to lead us? As a nation, <clears throat> excuse me, as a nation, when we were talking about <clears throat> the uh, Gog-Magog war in Ezekiel chapter 38, <clears throat> and how everything is setting up for that particular war, that... Um, the main, the main target for the, the nations that are confederated together are, is, is Israel. And to say that it, it isn't is, is, is not understanding the signs of the times and not understanding the times themselves. 
So we have to awaken to these things. Much of the church today doesn't really care for Israel. That's another interesting sign of the times. Because they've chosen to adopt a political position against Israel and for Palestinians. And we've talked many times about the very fact that there there are no real Palestinians. There's not a Palestinian race. There's not a Palestinian nation. There's not a Palestinian people. There's an interesting word that'll come up in our study today, and, and it's the word Palestine in the Old Testament. But I've mentioned this before, that when you see that, you realize that the uh, Old Testament or that the uh, King James translators were actually only using a term that was applied actually to the Philistines. But it is very interesting prophetically to think that the word is used in there for a or a type of people that are being mentioned today as Palestine. I just find that really significant. So with that in mind, we'll get into our, our, our study here. But uh, that's, going to very, that's going to be playing very prominently for us in this chapter. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Actually, one, 1 through 3. I didn't change that in my own, my own notes here. Okay. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now, if you mark anything down or underline or highlight, always mark down when God says, my people, my heritage, Israel, my land. That's a very significant thing when God says these are mine. Okay? Verse 3, and they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. So as we get into this third chapter of Yoel, there is a truth in scripture that bears great consideration by the whole world, not just by the believer, not just by the Jews and, 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 and the believers, uh, the Christians. It is a truth that bears great consideration by the whole world, and that is that every nation that has ever existed on this earth will one day stand before God in judgment. Every nation on this earth, every nation that has been a nation, will stand before God. Every ruler and every leader, and in most cases, even every citizen of every nation will give an account as to whether they have passed or failed in their trust of the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth and his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, and whether they were responsible citizens or not in regard to their treatment or mistreatment of the people and the nation of Israel. Now, just in that statement that I made itself, 
you can get an idea of why so many people don't like Israel today. Well, there's always this talk about them being God's people, God's chosen people. Well, no, we're all people. We're all the same. Not according to the Lord. Not according to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So understand it is a very special thing for God to have this consideration for Israel that the whole world is responsible for how they have treated his people. So it is no coincidence then that at the time of the Lord's gathering of Israel into the land that he will gather all nations into this valley of Jehoshaphat to judgment. And while this may be based on the narrative of 2 Chronicles 20, which we'll get to momentarily, it is more than tradition that the location of judgment is the Kidron Valley, which is in or near Jerusalem. Let us not forget that this is still describing the time that we know as the day of the Lord, the seven-year period of tribulation. And what we find in this last chapter of Joel are two great events that highlight the final climactic day of the Lord. Two events. One is God's judgment of the nations, of course, because we've already started reading about that. But verses 1 through 16 deal with God's judgment of the nations. But verses 17 through 21, to the very end of this chapter, we will be dealing with the Lord's promise of a glorious, eternal kingdom. So before we turn to our text, let's remember that what we see happening in the Middle East today, as I've already stated, especially as it pertains to the state of Israel, can only be attributed to the prophecies given by the Lord himself to a young nation that had been delivered from the bondage of Egypt and would eventually inhabit a new homeland. Now think about the time frame that I just mentioned. God giving prophecies to a young nation. A nation that has just come out of of Egypt. A nation that God is going to lead out of Egypt to the promised land, as it were. And he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, he says, And it shall come to pass. Now remember, this is a prophetic statement. (laughs) And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have said before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, notice, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee. These are things based upon things that he has said. If you will obey me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, I will bring curses upon you. And eventually curses that would lead to their separation from the land or their scattering from the land as a part of their judgment. So he says, which I have said before thee, thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God has driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God. Now notice again, this is prophecy, it's prophetic. And thou and, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations, notice, 
whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. If any of, of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. So what an amazing prophecy given by God, actually through the prophet Moses, the person Moses, but he was a prophet indeed as well. And God speaks through Moses to the people and uh, tells them that there would be a time when they would be scattered among the nations, but he would gather them together and bring them back into the land and they will obey him and they will be blessed. Still, still, even after they return, all will not be well. There will be a period of great tribulation for Israel. And again, it's outlined clear, uh, clearly for us in Scripture. Uh, this is one verse that is to remind you, we've been there before, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, I mentioned it already. <laughs> Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the time of Israel's trouble, not the time of the church's trouble. There is no trouble for the church. There is persecution upon the church, and there has been for 2,000 years. The scripture has made it very clear that if we are followers of Christ, if they hated Christ, Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. We've been given all the warnings about what's going to happen to the church, but the, the tribulation is not about sending the, the church into it for, for any uh, sort of purging. Or cleansing because we've already been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else needed. But for us to continue to stay faithful until the day of Christ. So it says it is even the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. Israel will be saved out of the tribulation. Turn to Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. Daniel 12 1 says and at that time shall Michael stand up. The great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. It is that one angelic being that has been assigned to oversee and protect the nation of Israel, as it were. This is the reason why even Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Well, he's not, of course. We know, we know that. Well, this is one reason why, because he is one who is for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, notice, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And then there is the statement in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, that speaks of the, the, the dreadedness of, of, of the day of the Lord. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness. And not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and, not, and no brightness in it. So Israel is going to go through those seven years of tribulation. But listen to the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 21, 
When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. The abomination of desolation that Jesus is speaking about is the Antichrist, the beast, going in in the middle of the seven-year period when he has proclaimed some kind of peace treaty with Israel and he goes into the temple and he stands in the holy place and desecrates the temple. And he goes on, Jesus goes on to say, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Understand this. Then let them which be in Judea. Where is Judea? Well, it's the southern part of Israel. Let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. How many of you like to live on top of your roof? Not today. Not yesterday. But in Israel, you do. Even to this day, they go up to their roofs to rest and recreate or whatever. It's part of the way the city's built in Jerusalem and in other places in Israel. So we know that Jesus is describing Israel and in particular Judea and in particular, even more particularly, uh, Jerusalem. And neither let him which is in the field return back to, his, uh, to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. That's, you know, that's describing days that are familiar to the Jewish people. For then shall be great tribulation. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And so it will be at the end of the great tribulation that the Lord will pour out his wrath upon all the unbelieving and wicked nations of the earth. But let's back up just for a moment because we want to get back to our text and look at a few things there. So let's go back to verse 1 of Joel chapter 3. And there the prophecy says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I shall bring again notice the word again I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem the word or the phrase actually bring again those two words is one Hebrew word shuv shuv s-h-u-v and that word is very important here to understand because it means to restore to recover and to deliver but to do so again. So this phrase bring again suggests from the biblical evidence that there will be two returns of, of uh, Jewish people to the promised land. Two returns. Now some, some would say okay well maybe we're talking about first of all they, they did return after their Babylonian captivity. Well we know that. But uh, that was a very, very early fulfillment of prophecy. And yet there is yet another prophecy to come. And this is where it gets, you know, just a little bit sticky because uh, the word again does, in the context, uh, as we'll see in just a moment uh, in a comparative passage that, uh, that refers to a second uh, return. 
around the same time. One, of course, involves the return of Jewish people to the land in unbelief. This may very well be the Aliyah, or the return that is occurring today and has since uh, 1948. When Jewish people leave one country to go to Israel and apply for citizenship in Israel, that is called Aliyah. And uh, that is happening and has been happening for quite a, quite a while now, about seven years. And uh, a lot of Jewish people from the United States have gone and are living in Israel now as citizens of the state of Israel. It is interesting to note that Jewish people from 185 countries of the world, 185 countries of the world are now full Israeli citizens and living in Eretz Israel, which is the land of Israel. These are the Jewish people who will soon be redeemed by the coming of Messiah. So this is, uh, this is somewhat of the return in unbelief. Now they believe, you know, many of them do believe in God. There are religious Jews that live in the land. But a lot of the people that live in Israel that are, that are Jewish are not believers. Many of them are agnostic uh, for whatever reason. So this is what's happening today. I mean, you know, they, they go through the, the festivals and the feasts, especially Passover, and they go through the, the, the rites and the customs and the ceremonies, but they don't believe. Now, there are those who do. But they don't believe that their Messiah is Yeshua, Jesus. That, that's, that's, that's where we got to see that there's going to be a, a return of those who are believers. But uh, those that are in the land today, if Jesus were to come in the next, within the next month or so, let's, let's just say, these would be the Jewish people who will soon be redeemed by the coming of Messiah. And how do we know this? Well, we go to Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me. Notice who's speaking. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This is Messiah speaking. This is Messiah saying, they will look upon me whom they pierce. Well, who do they pierce? They pierce their Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. It's hard to fathom a father killing his son. What a picture we were given in Genesis 22 of Abraham taking Isaac to Mount Moriah and being obedient to the Lord to take him to sacrifice. And yet, of course, the Lord stopped him from it. But it was significant because it gave us that picture how a God 
who is a father, would send his only begotten son, who would voluntarily just give his life. Give it, but to take it again for the sake of of a lost and dying world. They shall look upon him, upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 also speaks of that because it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, speaking of the Messiah, Yeshua. He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. So this is uh, speaking of that second coming of Jesus that is concurrent with what is going to take place when Jesus comes at that time of the end of the tribulation period, the second coming of Jesus. It says, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. People don't mourn or wail about Jesus today, do they? In fact, we find that there are a lot of people that actually curse God, they curse Christ, they curse the church, they curse the Bible or the word of God, they, they curse all the things that belong and pertain to God. But one day they'll mourn and one day they'll wail. Why? Because they'll realize that they've been duped, that they have been deceived by the enemy of their souls. Yet they had been given every opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ. See, no one can blame God. No one can, can, can blame the Lord for not having given them an opportunity. Whether it be by us going out and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ or there's not one person who is going to go to hell unjustly. Not one. And people will wail because they will see that every opportunity that they had, they flaunted. How sad that's going to be. <laughs> At the same time, how thankful, how grateful we are. that we saw the light. And truly that is what we saw when we came to know what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. And the light of the word of God just shined and showed us how real it was. And then we realized how real it was because we saw something happening in us. A life was changing. We had become a new creature in Christ. The old was passed away. All things had become new. When we weep today, 
For the most part, we, we weep in joy for what Christ has done for us. We weep in humility for the fact that he loved us the way he did to save us. And we are not worthy of it. But we weep in relief, Lord. What a joy that you saved us the way you did. But it also appears that a Jewish return then will happen again, but this time it will be believers. There's one verse of scripture to consider, and I'd like for you to turn there. It's Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 11, verses 10 and 11. For here it says, and in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. Now, Jesse, of course, was the father of David. But the root of Jesse is a name that is given to Jesus Christ. There shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign. Now the word ensign in the Hebrew is the word nes, N-E-S, nes. And it means a sign, a, a banner, a flag, or a standard. The root of Jesse which shall stand for a sign, a banner, a flag, a, a standard of, it, of the people. It, it kind of reminded me of, of what, when, when Jesus was talking about Moses in the wilderness and, and the people were getting stung by all, you know, these, these uh, snakes and all of that. And then, so they put a bronze snake up and the people, if they looked at it, they, they would look to it. Uh, they'd be healed, you know. And of course, if I be lifted up, Jesus said, I shall draw them in unto me. And if we look unto Jesus, you know, then we get healed of, of, our, of our sin. You know, in, in that respect, you know, so here's Jesus as the sign, the ensign, the banner, the flag, the standard of the people. And then notice it says, to it shall the Gentiles seek. And his rest shall be glorious. But look at verse 11, it says, and it shall come to pass in that day. And again, that phrase, when we talk about the day of the Lord, in that day, points us to that time. The, the day of the Lord, the seven year period. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Notice, again. To recover the remnant of his people. A remnant has always been a portion of people that are true believers. And I have to tell you that uh, churches like ours In this day and time, we can consider ourselves as a remnant because there are a lot of churches where they don't, they don't believe, they don't truly believe. I mean, I, I've, I've seen where in some denominational churches today, they have been so confused by, by seminarians that come out and say, well, we're, we're not really sure that Jesus died on the cross or we're not really sure that he rose again from the dead <clears throat> or we're not really sure that he was born of a virgin contradicting everything that the word of God says about Jesus. 
So in that respect, we're, we're a remnant because we believe all of that stuff about Jesus, don't we? I would hope we do. So the Lord shall set his hand again on the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, and from Elam, from Shinar, and Hamat, and, and, and the isle, islands of the sea. And I mean, you know, we could spend a lot of time saying that we're just talking about coming from every, every place and every direction. But what all of this is leading to is that the return of Israel into the land will never be fully accomplished until the Lord himself does it by his own omnipotent power. God is the one that is going to bring Israel back into the land. He's already started that process. But it is God who is going to bring his people back into the land. Consider, if you will, Jeremiah chapter 23. And again, this is all foundational for the rest of this chapter. So remember, when we enter into a new chapter, we're doing foundational work. But here it says in verse 1 of Jeremiah 23, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Notice the phrase again, my people. If we are going to deal with the church or if, if Israel is dealing you know, with, with, uh, with their uh, remnant of believers, God is very particular. Actually, his people is all of his people. And he knows those who are leading his people astray. He knows them. So he says, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them, and I will, and will bring them again to their falls. And the implication is he is the one doing it. And they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the day is coming. I'm sorry, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, the root of Jesse that's mentioned in Isaiah, what we just read. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called. Speaking of the Messiah, the Lord our righteousness. Whether it's Jehovah Tzitkenu or Yahweh Tzitkenu or Hashem Tzitkenu, the name, because they don't pronounce his name, nonetheless it's the Lord, our righteousness. And how interesting that when you look at the book of Revelation and you see the description of Jesus there in, in, in Revelation 19, that, uh, that he bears the name righteousness upon him because he is our righteousness. There's no other righteousness but the righteousness of Christ. When we put on Jesus, we're putting on the righteousness of Jesus. Why? Because we don't have any righteousness of our own. And Therefore, behold, the days come, verse 7, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, 
the Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In other words, we're not going to go all the way back to that particular deliverance. No. He says, but the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. He is talking about the very end of time now. The north country, and then it says all countries whither I have driven them. Bringing them all back into the, into the land. But who's doing it? God himself is doing it. And if there is a, 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 a return of, of the uh, unbeliever and then the return of the believer, just look at it as, as right now. We see the fulfillment of the people coming into the land and God is preparing them to a certain extent. He's preparing them for the seven-year period of tribulation. But at the end of that seven-year period, when Jesus comes, his second coming, not the rapture of the church, but the second coming of Jesus with ten thousands of his saints and his hosts of heaven, when they come to Jerusalem, when they do that, that is, of course, the believers that come with Jesus. Jesus has orchestrated all of this and is doing it himself. So now at the time of the regathering of Israel to the land by the Lord is also when he will gather all nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat to judgment. Let's look at verse 2 now of Joel chapter 3. It says, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat which, by the way, the name Jehoshaphat or Jehoshaphat means Jehovah or Yahweh to judge, or literally the judgment of the Lord God. That's the name Jehoshaphat, the judgment of the Lord God. So it says, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people. Now, sometimes we think he's going to plead with people. You know, when you plead with somebody, you're trying to, you know, in the English anyway, in, in, uh, the English word itself is sometimes you're pleading for them. You're, you're bargaining or you're trying to get some kind of a deal done to get them uh, back to you. You know, I'm, I'm pleading with them for my people. But that's not what the word means in the Hebrew. <laughs> the word plead here <laughs> means literally to pronounce sentence and execute judgment. God says, I'm going to pronounce sentence and execute judgment on you on behalf of my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So God's not coming to, to bargain or deal. He's coming to execute judgment. This passage here is parallel to Zechariah chapter 14 where the Mount of Olives where Jesus says Messiah will come and, 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 and set upon the Mount of Olives the Mount of Olives corresponds to the Valley of Jehoshaphat we'll see that in just a moment but here the Mount of Olives corresponds to the Valley of Jehoshaphat if we look at Zechariah chapter 14 verses 1 through 4 behold the day of the Lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. So now we have a picture and, and we know where the nations are going to come to battle. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem 
to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. Folks, the day of the Lord is not a good day. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city, and then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. You stand on the Mount of Olives today, and you look across at the, at the, at the old city, and of course, sadly, you look at a, you know, the Dome of the Rock and, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque that's over by it. But you realize something. You're standing where Jesus is going to stand when he comes with ten thousands of his saints to do battle for his people. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. So you're looking at, the, at you, as you're looking at Jerusalem, you're looking at the eastern gate. It's on the eastern side. The gate that is right now walled in or, or, or bricked in, as it were. Which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. The Mount of Olives shall cleave. There'll, there'll be a, a, a separation, as it were. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. That valley is the Kidron Valley. Why is that significant? Because back in the days of King Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and I urge you to read that tonight sometime. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. When Jehoshaphat was faced with uh, enemies surrounding the children of Judah, and they went and took this <laughs> burden to the Lord, this is when the Lord had told them, he says, you know, because they fell on their faces, crying out to the Lord. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the people from Mount Seir were surrounding them. And the Lord told them, stand up. On this day, you're not going to do any battle. But you're going to put your worship team out in front. All of those who lead in worship put them out in front and you begin to praise me and worship me because the battle is not yours the battle is mine saith the Lord and of course when they went in obedience to do that the armies of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the people from Mount Seir they just destroyed themselves they got so confused that God destroyed them in the, in the sense they destroyed themselves. And it would be called, in verse 26 of Second Chronicles 20, the Valley of Blessing. It says, and on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the Valley of Berachah. That's the Valley of Blessing. 
for, they, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the same place was called the Valley of Beracha unto this day. The valley lies between Jerusalem. Get this. It lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And has the Kidron flowing, the Kidron Valley flowing right through it. And as King Jehoshaphat overthrew the confederate foes of Judah, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, so the Lord was to overthrow those of Tyre and Sidon, Philistia, Edom, and Egypt in a very similar fashion. Interesting that we are using those terms today. Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, Edom, and Egypt. Egypt, you all know, is still around. Edom is... is over in the area of Jordan. But Edom, of course, were the descendants of Esau. Philistia, of course, are the Philistines that came actually from the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, you know, then they came, they were a seaworthy people. Tyre and Sidon, uh, again, they were kind of related to the Philistines or the Philistines and the Phoenicians. Uh, but they were the ones who ended up being in a place today that is known as uh, the Gaza Strip. So notice verse 4 of Joel chapter 3. Yea, and what have, we, what have ye to do with me, O Tyre, and Sidon? And here it is, and all the coasts of Palestine. Well, there was no Palestine then. But they used a word that, was, that had been coined by... Uh, Hadrian, I believe it was, the Roman uh, emperor who hated Israel. He, he's hated him so much that uh, he gave the, the, the name of the land as Palestine or Palestina because he wanted to offend the Jews by it. The Philistines were one of the greatest enemies of Israel. So the word that came forth from Philistine was Palestine. So the King James uh, uh, translators used uh, the word of Palestine only because it was, but it wasn't, but how prophetic it is that today we're dealing with something called Palestine, even though there is no true Palestinian, because <laughs> there is no Palestinian nation or Palestinian people. They're mostly Arab people. So he says, in all coasts of Palestine, will you render me a recompense? And if you recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? I wouldn't want to be one of them. Jeral 3 verse 19 says, Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. So that is something that has been having, uh, taking place throughout all of history. And even into present times. So obviously there was an earlier fulfillment long ago. But the ultimate event that is foreshadowed here is still future. When the Lord will especially step in and destroy Jerusalem's last foes. Of whom Tyre and Sidon and Edom and Egypt and, the, and Philistia are types of. The Lord himself will summon or arouse all the nations to gather for war to fight over the land of Israel. But what will the Lord do? Go back to the book of Isaiah and look at chapter 13. What will the Lord do? 
Behold, it says, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. What is the day of the Lord? We all know what it is, right? Day of darkness, not of light. A day of desolation, a day of destruction. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And notice verse 11. And I will punish the world for their evil and, their, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. As I was reading this and meditating upon it, I started thinking about how arrogant and haughty so many people are today concerning the people in the land of Israel. Arrogant in in their assessment of how evil Israel is as oppressors when in fact that's, that's just a lie. And, and so many lies are being thrown about today. And not just about Israel, but about those who actually stand for Israel. Those who care about God's people. Those who care about the land. Those who have knowledge about the scriptures that pertain to Israel. And believe it and trust in it. But people today are, are just so arrogant. That's what I tell you what, that's what we see in our politics today. Now most people are trying to throw that label onto the President of the United States. But we, I, I tell you this, when one finger goes out, there's three pointing back at you. And that's the arrogance of people today who are hiding so much of what is today a, a a major attack on anything that is good. Anything that is good. I mean, you may not like the president's style. I don't like it all the time. But I know one thing. Just as much as the Lord had put President Clinton in office and President Obama in office, so he's put President Trump in office. Are we not told that we're supposed to pray for our leaders? That's what we're called to do. I wonder how many people do that. There's an arrogancy that arises when we feel so free to attack. From what position? I mean, it's going on. I mean, it's, it's just, that's why, that's why I say that what we see happening in, the, in our politics in this country is insane. It is insanity. 
It is insanity running amok. Well, getting back to our text, we've got to finish up here. But in verse 2 of our text, going back to Joel chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord is actually spelling out the reasons for his judgment against the nations. God's concern was and always will be his people. And so he listed only the sins that were specifically committed against them. And yet, even in listing these, the Lord covered only enough sins to show that every nation stood extremely guilty before him. First of all, the nations were guilty of mistreating God's people. They were guilty of mistreating God's people. They were guilty of enslaving them and exiling them. Scattering, that's where it says scattering among the nations. Take note in verses 2 and 3. Once again, it says, my people, my heritage, Israel, my land, my people. This is what you've done to my people. The Assyrians did it to the, the nation of Judah, I mean, uh, Israel. Uh, the Babylonians did it to the nation of Judah or the children of Judah. Not to mention that even in modern times, what took place back in the 30s and 40s in Germany. Nazi Germany. There were a lot of good German people who helped the Jewish people, or tried to at least, but too many that didn't do anything. And before you know it, six million Jews were exterminated. That leads us to the second point. The nations were guilty of conquering, dividing, and exploiting God's land. Because the Lord said, that's my land. The land belongs to God. The land of Israel belongs to him, and he had given them, his people, the right to live on that land. He gave them the right. This right was given to the Jews by covenant and agreement. Genesis 12, verse 7, to Abraham, and the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. I, I will give this land unto thy seed. Well, who was his seed? What seed counted? What seed mattered? Isaac and Jacob. Deuteronomy 3, verse 20. Until the Lord have given rest unto your brethren as well as unto you, and until they also possess the land which the Lord your God has given them beyond Jordan, and then shall you return every man unto his possession which I have given you. God has given it to them by covenant, by agreement. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me. That was something that became a problem later. Deuteronomy 18 verse 9. When thou art come into the land 
which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abomination of those, uh, of those nations. Sadly, they gave in to that. But nonetheless, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that's what I want you to see. God gave them the land. And so any person or any nation who invades, divides, or exploits God's land is bound to face his condemnation in the last days of human history. You can count everyone in the United Nations that has ever condemned Israel for any reason. You can even blame certain people in certain administrations of the past in the United States that have agreed that it is important to divide up the, the, the city of Jerusalem and to divide up the land of Israel and have a two-state solution. There's no two-state solution in the scriptures. The land belongs to God and he gave it to Israel. How do you argue with that? You can't. This is God's edict. This is God's desire. So now the nations were also guilty of trading God's people like property, even boys and girls. Look at verse 3. And they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. This down through the ages. Once a nation conquered a people, the enslaved were at the disposal of their conquerors. Those who considered themselves the rulers and the strong of the nation were toying with people's lives. That's going on today. Human trafficking, sex trafficking. We're making slaves of people all the time. In the name of making the almighty dollar. They would cast lots. They would throw dice to see which of God's people would be their slaves. They traded young boys for prostitutes and little girls for wine so they could get drunk, doing everything for their own sensual pleasures. But those who did these things, and by the way, they still do these things in the world today, those who did these things will face God's terrifying judgments. Let me close by reading to you Isaiah 29, verses 6 through 8. Just so that you'll know that God has covered all of this. God has covered it. He's given every opportunity for people to repent. He's given nations opportunities to support his people. And yet in Isaiah 29, verse 6, it says, Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel. Ariel is the name that means the Lion of God. And here it is attributed to the city of Jerusalem. Speaking of Jerusalem as once being the 
the fortress that it was. The multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. Now listen to this. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Your desires against my people and my land are going to leave you empty. Hey, listen, we can dream a lot, right? We can dream about having a lot and eating a lot and drinking a lot. We can dream it all, but when you wake up, you've got nothing. I suppose that much of the world today can be classified as just dreamers that have nothing because they have stood up against not only the God of Israel, they stood up against Israel and that was the wrong thing to do because God said, you come after my people, I will protect them. And in these last days, every conflict that we read about, Psalm 83, Ezekiel 38, Revelation, dealing with the issue of Armageddon, all of that, it's God who fights for his people. You have to face him. Well, you're not going to do very well because you're not, going to, you're not going to defeat him. There's nothing that anyone can do but surrender to the God of Israel. So from here on, we're going to you know, look, have our focus upon this issue of uh, the judgments of the Gentile nations up to and enduring Armageddon, and then, of course, uh, we'll conclude with the blessings of the kingdom that we find in the last uh, five verses of the scriptures. <laughs>